Welcome to the Travel Therapy Mentor Podcast, your number one source for travel therapy information and education, hosted by travel physical therapist duo Jared and Whitney. Join us every other week on Facebook Live to learn about a new travel therapy topic or listen to the replay right here on our podcast. If you're new to travel therapy and ready to get started, contact us to get connected with the travel therapy recruiters and companies we recommend by visiting TravelTherapyMentor.com slash recruiters. Again, that's TravelTherapyMentor.com slash recruiters. If you're ready to remove the guesswork and jumpstart your travel therapy career, let us teach you step-by-step everything you need to know to get started and to be financially successful as a traveler by enrolling in our comprehensive travel therapy course titled Becoming a Financially Successful Travel Therapist. You can visit TravelTherapyMentor.com course and use the discount code TRAVEL to save $150 on our course. Again, that's TravelTherapyMentor.com course and the discount code is TRAVEL. And if you're looking for the best way to get your CEUs online as a traveler who's always on the go, you can use our discount code to get the best rate on an annual MedBridge subscription, which is where we get all of our online CEUs. Use code FIFTHWHEELPT, that's F-I-F-T-H-W-H-E-E-L-P-T, for the discount, all one word. And last, if you're interested in getting started with credit card hacking to take advantage of free or low-cost travel like we do, check out our top credit card recommendations for travelers at TravelTherapyMentor.com credit. Again, that's TravelTherapyMentor.com credit. All right, and now on to this week's episode. Hey guys. Hey everybody. Welcome to another Travel Therapy Mentor video. Tonight we're going to be doing an exclusive Q&A for our course members. Um, but we're also going to be uploading it later on the podcast because some of the course members said that they didn't have Facebook or they wanted to be able to listen to it later. So uh, we will be uploading on this on, this on the, the podcast, but all the questions come from our course members. We got some ahead of time. We've got about 20 questions um, that people ask ahead of time, but anyone that wants to join in and ask questions We'll also cover those live now. Um, these videos, it's much easier when we get a lot of questions from you guys to be able to explain it in video format. Uh, it's just, you can be a lot more um, nuanced instead of just text. And then we can also refer back to this later if we get similar questions. So um, yeah, hopefully we'll get through all your questions tonight. Yep, um, we wanted to be able to do this um, exclusive Q&A for our course group members so we can go a little bit more in depth um, rather than just taking random questions uh, from the audience. Um, but those of you that will listen on the podcast later will get to benefit from hearing the answers as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like we said, we got um, maybe 20, 20 or so questions. We know that a lot of you guys in the course are in different stages of your travel therapy journey. Some of you haven't started traveling yet. Some of you have already started traveling. Some of you have not started the course yet, and some of you have already completed the course. So um, we do have some of the newer questions um, from some folks that haven't taken the course yet, um, but it, it really never hurts to rehash some of those answers um, and go a little bit more in depth on those basic questions, and then we'll go more in depth on the more advanced questions as yeah. well. And for you guys that are already on here, let us know if the video quality is good and the sound's good. We are in uh, Medellin, Colombia, and uh, we're never sure how the Wi-Fi is. This is actually a really nice place we're staying at, and the Wi-Fi seems decent, but you never know. Yeah, we're in Colombia, South America. Um, so yeah, we've been traveling around Latin America. We were in Mexico, uh, Guatemala, and now Colombia. We've been gone for like maybe six weeks. Um, so the trip has been pretty good so far. Uh, maybe some of you guys have been following along on Facebook or Instagram. Um, for those of you guys that are tuning in live, we'd love if you would just remind us in the comments 
who you are and where you are in this process. So are you, have you started a travel contract? Um, are you getting ready to start a travel contract? When will you be beginning? I know some of you guys aren't starting until maybe the summer or next year. Let us know your discipline. Um, are you a new grad or an experienced clinician that's getting into travel therapy? Please just let us know in the comments. I know that a few of you guys are already on live. So welcome. All right, so we tried to group um, all of your questions into like different categories so that it'll be a little bit more organized. Um, so one of the first questions that we got was about the job market. And we actually haven't done one of our job market updates lately. Um, it's been a little bit because the job market's just been really good and there haven't been a lot of changes. But we did get a, a brief update from one of the bigger companies that we work with. And they gave us kind of a rundown of the different job numbers that they're seeing for each discipline. Um, these numbers were from AMN, which is one of the bigger um, staffing companies out there. So it's a good kind of overview of all the jobs they have in their database. And the job market is still really good, especially for physical therapists. So um, I'll have Jared tell you the numbers of current open travel positions for each discipline. Yeah, and we're planning on probably in the next month uh, doing like a, a more in-depth job update or job market update like we normally do. It's just the market's been pretty good. There haven't been really a lot of changes, so there hasn't been um, a whole lot of reason to do those kind of updates. But right now, so the numbers we got, OT, there's about 300 open jobs in the country. CODA, about 30 open jobs in the country. PT, about 1,000 open jobs in the country. PTA, about 100, and SLP, about 900. So actually, the PT numbers, I think, are slightly less than they were in January, last time we did a job market update. But I mean, still great. Definitely pay rates are still staying high. Some are even increasing more. We've seen some higher pay rates recently. Um, so. We, uh, we just talked to a bunch of travelers. We were at the Cormed trip um, in Mexico. So we talked to a bunch of travelers there and some people there are taking really high paying contracts right now. So job market's great. Um, the question also was asking about the housing market and costs going up. Um, yeah, costs just keep going up. The housing market's crazy. Uh, if you look at like housing, um, house sales prices, they're all way up. Rent prices, long-term and short-term are all going up. So hopefully the job market for travel therapists stays really good to offset those increased costs. But yeah, you're, you're gonna see higher costs, especially in really desirable places, or not even really desirable places, but places where people have moved to um, recently. So places like Miami right now, the, job, or the, uh, the housing market is insane in Miami. It's extremely expensive. Austin, Dallas, um, some of these states, Nashville, uh, some of these places that people are moving to recently, the costs are much higher. Yeah. So definitely, I think for especially PTs with the higher pay rates, um, SLPs, you're not going to have really much trouble right now at all with finding a good job to offset your expenses. Um, but always definitely try to you know look and try to get the lowest cost of living as possible. Um, we just recently, like I think a month ago or about like a little bit before we left for this trip, did an in-depth video talking about all those variables and some ways that you guys can cut down on your costs. Now, if you are, um, especially some of the disciplines that are having more competition for jobs, like OT, cut a little bit more competition right now, but you can definitely still find good jobs if you're somewhat flexible um, on setting and or location. It's really gonna be our PTA and our CODA friends that are gonna have the most trouble with finding consistent contracts as a traveler. And especially with CODA only having you know 50 or less options throughout the country, and CODAs unfortunately don't have the benefit of having any um, compact licensure 
it's going to be a lot more challenging for you to find consistent work and have the state license already in hand in the state where the job might pop up. So I do think it's a harder time right now for a CODA to be a traveler, um, especially a newer graduate CODA because the jobs are going to be so competitive. So we really don't encourage newer graduate CODAs and really not newer graduate PTAs either to travel right now. Um, but otherwise, for the other disciplines, the job market is really good right now. Yeah, and all things considered, um, with housing costs going up, travel pay packages being about the same, maybe increasing slightly. Uh, it might have been better you know, six months ago comparatively, but still right now is better than the last eight or nine years as a traveler, even including the higher housing costs. So still a great time to be a traveler. Um, we, uh, we see some of the pay packages now and we are pretty jealous and it makes us want to take some of these jobs. Yeah, so. and for some of you guys that aren't ready to start until later in 2022, or even in 2023, um, all markers are predicting that we're still gonna see the job market being really good. So we really think this is still gonna be a good career move for you guys, even if you're not ready to start just yet. Um, with the impacts of COVID, we really feel like that's gonna be long lasting and we're not gonna see the jobs drop off for at least another year. Um, most of our recruiters kind of said that things go in like phases of like, two to four years where we're going to see a big jump in the jobs. There were just so many staffing disruptions with COVID, um, obviously health issues from our patients. There's going to be a lot of clients in need of healthcare services. There's a lot of healthcare workers that left um, the industry. So I think there's going to be a big need for travel healthcare workers for at least another year, if not two plus years. Barring any major changes with sure. the world right now, because things are kind of crazy. But, but yeah, nothing changes. I think the travel market will be good for quite a while. Yeah. For those of you guys that are tuning in live, um, I know only a few of you were able to actually do the live video tonight. But can you just leave us a comment? Um, and let us know if the sound quality is okay, if everything's good, and also just let us know um, a little bit about you. If you're a PT and OT and SLP and assistant and where you're at in this process, just leave a comment. All right, so the next section is getting started and planning to travel. Um, and so these questions, um, these getting started questions came from one of our newer graduate members who hasn't had an opportunity to start the course yet. So we do have a whole section um, on the course about the process to begin and get started and leading up to actually beginning travel therapy, but we'll kind of rehash that a little bit here. So she wanted to know what are some things I can do prior to when I actually start working with recruiters to prepare? Well, the number one thing in our opinion is our course. We really think that the course is going to make you feel the most prepared to know exactly what to do from start to finish from the time that you're just beginning thinking about travel therapy to when you take that contract and beyond, like take you through your contract, take you through finding the next contract. So um, I think you'll feel that you have the answer to that question a lot more clearly after you do have an opportunity to start the course. Um, and she also mentioned that she's doing a clinical right now. She's still about four to six months out from getting her license. Um, and for our newer graduate friends and our students, we do recommend that you wait until really talking to those recruiters until about three months from graduation. It's still a bit early when you're six months out. Yeah, and besides that, the, the other main thing you can do prior to travel is just, you know, brush up on clinical skills, make sure you feel confident, um, do as much research and things as you can. I know that made me feel much more confident as a new grad, um, reading research, feeling like the things I, were, I was doing as a clinician were evidence-based made me just have more confidence in the clinic. So those kind of things always help. Yeah. She also wanted to know what are some additional ways that she could get plugged into the travel therapy world and build connections. So there's a lot of good networks online now. We have a couple of Facebook groups personally. Um, we have our private Facebook group for those of you guys that are in the course. Um, we also have our travel therapy mentor community group, which is a great group of um, 
everything from those thinking about getting started traveling to experienced travelers are in there. We also have our healthcare travelers on fire group. This is a group of more experienced clinicians for the most part, definitely some newer travelers too, but um, more experienced travelers that are more interested in finance and those aspects. So we have some really good communities there of, of a few thousand people on Facebook. We also really recommend the MedVenture app. It's a free app you can download for iPhone or Android. Um, it was started by a couple of travel nurses and it's kind of like they call it like the Airbnb meets Tinder of the healthcare traveler world. So you can download that free app. It's called MedVenture app and it's a way that you can actually search for other travelers in the area that you are. Um, you can do free meetups with them, go grab a beer, go on a hike, meet at the beach. Um, they also do things like facility reviews and other uh, features on that app. Yeah, and the other thing you can do is follow some people on Instagram. So, you know, we've got a, our Instagram account, but there's a ton of other travelers with their Instagram accounts, where they're at, what they're doing. Um, and you can meet a lot of people that way, just commenting back and forth on people's things. We've met hundreds and hundreds of travelers um, through Instagram and feel like we know them just from messaging back and forth and exchanging comments and that kind of thing. So that's always a good place as well. Yeah. Um, so our next question came from an experienced clinician who is wondering more about kind of the timeline and getting started of leaving her permanent job to begin traveling. And again, uh, I think she mentioned that she didn't get much of a chance to go through the whole course yet, but we do have a whole section um, where we talk about that. Um, pretty much the process for that is you're going to kind of, again, two, three months before you anticipate starting, you would want to get in touch with some of our, um, the recruiters. We can get you in touch with some of our recommended recruiters you would kind of uh, get the ball rolling with them by filling out your profile and just getting your resume in and your references in and things as ready as possible. Now, I know sometimes that is tricky for those of you guys that may need like your current employer to be your reference. So you might have to navigate that situation whether or not you've already let your current employer know, um, or maybe you might be able to have a colleague act as a reference if that situation is awkward for you. Now, um, she also mentioned about putting in a 30-day notice. Now, there are certain situations where you might have to put in your 30-day notice, unfortunately, before you have landed a travel job. And I know that's scary for a lot of people because sometimes your travel job won't get signed until two to three weeks before your start date. Um, every now and then with a really good job market like it is right now, you might be able to get lucky and find a contract eight weeks ahead of time and feel secure that you have it all lined up before you put in your notice, but not always. Yeah, what I would want to know, though, before putting in my 30 days notice is at least like be in the process of getting a license in the state that you want to go to first. Um, I would also want to make sure that there's jobs in that state that are open right now. And it looks like they're, you know, if you, when you're talking to the recruiters, ask them if they see jobs often in that area for the setting you're looking at, or you want to work in um, those kind of things, just to make sure that you have everything lined up before you actually put in your notice. Um, but that shouldn't be a big deal. You should be able to um, do that pretty easily. But um, yeah, there are situations where you might have to put in your notice before you actually find a job, which is a little scary, but it's really not a big deal. Everything in travel is last minute. We've signed contracts in less than a week before the start date. So things like that happen all the time. Yeah. Um, but again, we have a whole section on that in the course. So definitely take a look at that video to get a more in-depth answer on that as well. 
Um, by the way, there, we're in a city in Colombia, and there is so much noise outside. We've got the windows closed, but we can still hear so much yelling and stuff out there. So if you guys hear any background noise, that's what it is. We're in a kind of a bigger city. Yeah, we're actually in a, uh, the 11th story of a condo building here and um, beautiful views. But last night on a Monday night at like 1.30 a.m., they were still like blaring music out there at like a, a club down the road. So it's a, <laughs> it's a pretty happening city. Um, so some follow-up questions kind of to go with the last one were about licensure and the process of getting licensed. So for those of you guys that are already working as a clinician in one state and you're looking to go ahead and get a license in a new state, I would also consider that as part of your process for getting ready to start traveling is get at least one more license like Jared mentioned. And every different state is going to vary on like the time frame. So I would be talking to the recruiters in those two, three months leading up to you beginning travel about where you might be interested in and they can give you a little bit of insight about the job availability and the timeline for that license. So you may want to go ahead and get the one license, at least one other state license before you ever leave your permanent job and as you begin that job search process. Now for our friends that are newer graduates and you're trying to decide where to get your first license, we get this question a lot. Um, so one of our new grad friends said, where would you recommend getting your first license? Would you get it in your home state or the state where you think you might travel first? We think that it's always a good idea to get licensed in your home state uh, first for a few reasons. Uh, one, if you ever have time between contracts and let's say the job market's really bad like during COVID and you go back home, it's good to have a license there in case you need to practice in that area. And it also obviously establishes more ties for you in that state if your uh, tax home situation is like not already really solid. So that's one reason. Another reason is if your home state is in the compact, you have to be licensed in your home state to be eligible for the compact. So that's like 26 states now. So chances are your home state's probably in the compact. If it is, then you definitely want to be licensed there. So that opens you up to compact eligibility. Right. Um, and that's those are for two P big reasons. That's for PT and PT. PTA. And from what we understand for um, the OTs and OTAs and SLPs that uh, they have a process started for getting a compact license for speech and for OT, I think they're going to uh, mirror that same process where it's going to be based off your home state. Now for those of you that aren't so familiar with the compact licensure, we can't reiterate enough, your home state has to be participating in the compact for you to be eligible. You have to be a resident. And if you're state. questioning whether it's your home state or not, if you don't have a license, a driver's license or an ID in that state, then it's not your home state as yes. far as the compact is concerned. So unfortunately, you cannot just apply for a license in a compact state and become eligible for the compact. You ha your home state has to be one of the compact states. So for example, say your home state was New York. New York's not in the compact. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to apply for a Virginia license, because Virginia is in the compact. And then once I have a license there, I'll get to use the compact. Unfortunately, yeah. it doesn't work that way. Unless you're moving to Virginia, that yeah. won't work. So you would have to reestablish your whole permanent residence and everything. So therefore, um, anyway, to kind of go back to this original question is, we, we do recommend getting your first license in your home state. There's no rule that says you have to do that in terms of travel. We just think it's a good idea. Yeah, and then uh, specifically the question was, where would you recommend getting your first license? So what I would do if I could go back and I was just starting, I would get my first license in the home state and my second license would be California and uh, start from there because you would have a ton of job options, especially if you're a PT or PTA and your home state's in the compact, then you have like 
uh, 26 states to choose from plus California, which has a ton of jobs. And you could probably spend your whole travel career just going around those states. And for every discipline, California is going to have the most jobs. It's a really every big discipline. state. It's got a really big population, so they need a lot of healthcare workers. Um, so if you have any interest in going to California at some point, it's, it's a good idea just to go ahead and get it in the beginning when you're a newer graduate because you're going to have a lot of job options too. You're not going to have as many um, other licenses to get verified to be sent to California because the California license can be a little bit of a pain. Um, so if you do have interest in going there within your first year of travel, it's a good idea to get it. Um, if you don't think you would go there within your first year, then maybe hold off because it is an expensive license to get and to maintain. So you wouldn't want to like have it for a whole whole year and not use it. Yeah. Um, but it's a good a good state. So the next question was: Is it possible to get multiple licenses at once when you take the NPTE? Um, no. So what the way it works is you take the NPT in one state, you get licensed in that state, and then every other state after that, you get licensed by endorsement. So your very first state is licensed by examination. You take the test, you take their jurisprudence, you pass all that. From that point on, you're getting licensed by endorsement of the current states that you're licensed in. So if you say Virginia, uh, we want to get licensed there, it's our home state. We take the NPT there, we get our Virginia license by examination, uh, and then we want to get licensed in California. From that point on, we take any current licenses we have. So at that point, we only have Virginia. We get them to verify our license in good standing there, and then they will issue us a license in California. Uh, you know, as as long as you go through all the the hoops to get that license. Yeah, and I know that probably the reason that she was asking this is because she's eager to get started. She's you know hasn't finished school yet, um, hasn't gotten her first license yet, and she's like, well, if I could just be filling out these applications, right, and like have it all waiting on my NPTE scores, that would be great. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. So yeah. you will have to wait on that first license to come through. Now you could go ahead and like, if it was a paper application, like get as much filled out as possible and then just be waiting on your first state license to come through so they could verify. Um, but unfortunately you do have to have one state license before you can get another. And this is another reason that sometimes we think if you're a new grad who's really eager to take your first travel job like right away, like you don't want to wait. Um, it might not be a bad idea to see if you can take your first travel job somewhere in your home state because you already have that license, your first state. Um, and then what, while you work that first 13 week contract, be going ahead and working on other licenses. So that could be a strategy, that's what we did. Okay, so another um, question came from a, uh, a clinician who has been working for a little bit. He has a couple of different state licenses. And he was wondering about the process of like letting some of these licenses go. Um, so let me read the whole question. It was a little bit long. So if I hold a license in other states besides my home state, and now my home state is part of the compact, do I need to contact the boards of the states where I don't want to keep an active license? Um, do I just let it go? Do you need to tell them? I just want to clarify if there's an etiquette yeah, and this is specifically asking about if your home state's in the compact now and the state that you want to let the license lapse in is also in the compact because then you'd still have access to that state. Mm -hmm. um, and we, so I can tell you what we did. Um, we don't know for certain that this is the way to go about it, but it seems pretty safe in our opinion. Um, we, Virginia became part of the compact. We were licensed in North Carolina as well. We let our North Carolina license lapse. We didn't contact them. We just let it lapse. Um, our understanding based on the conversations we have had with the PT Compact people is that there's no issue with that. If we ever want to go back to 
North Carolina, we just apply for license um, through the compact, through Virginia, and there should be no issue with that. Mm -hmm. If there ever was an issue, we know tons of travelers over the years that have let license, licenses lapse and then reactivated them and they had no issue with that. So it's mm -hmm. not like you're gonna be put on bad standing if you don't renew a license. Like that happens all the time. So I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah, and we've let other licenses go that had nothing to do with the compact that we don't plan to use again. Um, and we know for a fact that like when you've let a license lapse, you still have to get it verified. So we're in the process of applying for our Alaska license. And in the past, we've held five other licenses, Arizona, Illinois, Massachusetts, Virginia, North Carolina. We let all of them except for Virginia go, but we still had to get them all verified. And some of those verifications- In Hawaii for you. Oh, in Hawaii. Um, so some of those verifications, they actually like CC'd us on the email. So we actually saw the verification and what it said. And so like, for example, I think it was Arizona said, um, you know, name, license number, date of expiration. And it said like inactive. And then it had a note that said like inactive because, um, therapists did not renew. Yeah. And so there was nothing on there about us being in bad standing and we just never said anything. We just didn't renew it. Yep. So as far as we know, that's completely fine and you don't have to notify them. Yep. Okay. Next section. Uh, we got a question about tax homes. Okay. So this, um, therapist, she wanted to know what do, what steps do we need to take to establish our tax home? Um, she said that she is currently renting in Florida, working in Florida, has also has friends and family in Florida, um, but she's thinking about like letting her, her lease run out and just establishing like one of her friend or family members' um, homes as her tax home. So the, um, the follow-up questions that I asked her to help clarify the situation is, have you been working in the same city or metro area that your friend or family member's um, home is in? Because a tax home is more than just a permanent address. Um, we have a whole section on tax homes. We have lots of articles about this, explaining more in depth what a tax home is, but it's really tied to where you've earned income. So for this therapist, because she's been working in the same city, what she can do is she could either keep her current lease um, and just establish that as her tax home because she's been living there, she's been having all her mail sent there and her bills, and she's been working in that city. Or she can probably legally get away with changing her address within the same city, but she still has tax ties to there because she's still been earning income. It's just like she moved across town, right? Um, and so then she would need to take some additional steps to establish her friend or family member's home as her new residence, like change her driver's license and her car registration and things to make that her new permanent address. Um, additionally, she would need to create a lease there or, um, and have pay rent and those types of things. So we highly recommend for those of you guys that have detailed questions about how to establish your tax home, those are just the basics of it. Um, there's a company called Travel Tax. They're extremely helpful. If you go on their website under Contact Us, they do what's called a tax home consultation. $50 for peace of mind. You pay them $50, you talk to them on, on the phone, they are tax experts. They will tell you exactly what you need to do based on your situation, because maybe your situation is exactly like the one I just described, but maybe it's tricky. Maybe you've been working in North Carolina, but you wanna move back home to New Jersey and call mom and dad's house your tax home now, it's not that easy. Yeah, and you really should not take our advice only on something related to your taxes because um, you know we know basics from what we've talked to from accountants, but everyone's situation is different. So really best to talk to an accountant about your specific situation if you have any questions about it. Absolutely, so I highly, highly recommend to all of you to invest the $50 
go to traveltax.com, set up a tax home consultation, and make sure that you have that squared away before you begin traveling and signing travel contracts because as soon as you start signing travel contracts and accepting tax-free money from the government, if you ever were to get audited, you would need to make sure that you had your tax home squared away, that you were legally able to receive those tax-free stipends. Yep. All right, so we've gotten a lot of questions on taxes this tax season. Um, so we got a few here. Yeah, and I do want to reiterate, I put these two questions near one another, tax homes and filing taxes. But just Very because they have things. the words taxes in it doesn't mean it's the same thing at all. They're, they're completely different things. Yes, they both have to do with the IRS in some way or another, but they're different things. Yeah. So here we're talking about the process of filing your tax return in April. Um, so the first question is, uh, I do have questions on where to start on filing taxes as a traveler. Uh, doing taxes in multiple states, it still confuses me. So again, if you if you have any questions, if you feel like it's overwhelming to file taxes, I mean, I know people that aren't travelers, so their tax situation is very easy, just get W-2s, permanent jobs, they still take their stuff, their, uh, their taxes to an accountant. So, you know, if you feel uncomfortable at all, you feel like you might make mistakes, always a good idea to go to an accountant and have them help you. But in general, We've done this now for seven years, I think, um, filing in multiple states, and it's not that difficult. So basically, any tax software that we've used, which we haven't used a ton, but I think they're probably mostly the same, they walk you through step by step. So every form you have, it'll ask, do you have this form? If so, what are the numbers on it? And it goes through all of that. So when you enter your W-2 on any of the tax software, it asks for your W-2, um, the W-2 should have state withholdings from each state that you worked in. and when you put that in there, that triggers the tax software to ask you questions about each state. And that starts the process of filing multiple state returns. Um, so that is a very easy process. You just walk you through step by step. This is what your withholdings were. This is what you should have paid in this state. This is what you owe or what your refund is. It's, it's really not a big deal. Uh, the only thing that's a little confusing about filing in, in multiple states is that uh, for most states, not all states that work this way, you should get a tax credit towards taxes that you paid in another state towards your home state. So let's say I worked in uh, Virginia and North Carolina and I earned uh, all of my income in North Carolina. Well, all of my withholdings go to North Carolina because that's where I actually earn the income. At the end of the year, I still owe taxes at the Virginia rate on all of my income to Virginia as well though. Now you might think, oh, well, I don't wanna pay double taxes. Well, that's the whole point of getting that credit from the state that you paid taxes towards. So the way it should work for most states is that then I get a credit for what I owed, what I paid to North Carolina towards my Virginia taxes, and that offsets a portion or sometimes all of what you owe for that state. So you're not paying double taxes, uh, double state taxes. You're basically just paying the higher of the two state taxes. Um, but it's a little bit confusing, but for the most part, the tax software will walk you through it. The way ours does it is our home state, we actually have to submit the state tax return of the states that we worked in to get that credit, and they send that out to the IRS with our tax return. And so that, that credit towards the other state applies to our home state, it tells us what we owe in our home state after that credit, and uh, you know the process is not real difficult, but again, if you're confused by that or you feel um, overwhelmed, it's always worth going to an accountant and they should be able to do it for you pretty easily. So it's really not that bad. I didn't know anything about filing taxes um, because I never had much employment prior to becoming a PT, uh, a travel PT, so I'd never really, I don't even think I'd ever filed taxes for because I never earned enough um, to need to or whatever. So the whole process of filing taxes to me as an individual was 
confusing. But if you've filed your taxes before on your own, um, it's really the same as a traveler. So even though it's like we're contractors and we're temporary employees, they still give you a W-2 just like a regular job, just like if you were a staff therapist at a hospital. The only difference is if you were a staff therapist at, at a local place, you would just get one W-2 from one company. For one state. For one state. Um, I thought you were going to interrupt me because for a moment I had a panic of whether or not it was supposed to be W-2 or W-4. No, you're right. W-2. Um, so now the only difference is if now say you work with um, one staffing company for all your jobs for the whole year, you're still only going to get one from that one company. It just might have more than one state on it. Or if you choose to work with like two or three different companies, then you might get two or three. But you just still, the tax software walks you through it. It says like, file your first W-2, enter all the, enter a, line A, line B, line C. It's really not that bad. Yeah, and, and also the first year I was a little scared, confused about what I was doing. Um, it took me a few hours to like Google things. And as I was going through, if there was anything I was confused about, I would Google it and you can figure everything out now. Um, there's tons of like just blog posts walking you through file taxes, filing taxes with whatever tax software you choose. And so it's it's not that not that difficult anymore. Yeah. Uh, it'll just take you some time to figure it out the first time. And then every time you do it after that, it's easier. Yeah. Um, now, again, if you feel more comfortable having someone else do it, then they will walk you through the process of all the paperwork you need to send into them. They'll just say, you know, send me your W-2, send me whatever other forms you might have. Travel tax, that company, they will do your taxes for you remotely. I think from what I've heard, they do charge a little bit more than some other services. So you, you may prefer just to go with your local CPA or somebody, but um, it's really not that bad. Um, now, we did also get a question about different tax filing software. So, um, this person was saying if you go to like TurboTax's website, um, it looks like you actually get charged, but they remembered us saying something about free file. Yeah. So, if you go through any of the websites, um, I was just looking at them right now. If you go through any of the websites, you just go to the actual website. They always charge you. I think TurboTax, if you if you have multiple states and a federal return, it might be 150 or 200 dollars. So it can be fairly expensive. But the free file that they're talking about, if you just go to Google and type in IRS free file, um, and you go to the actual IRS website, it will give you a list of tax software and the terms for which they might be free to you. And most of that is based on income limits. Um, so if you, we always use Tax Act, and I believe if you make less than 65,000 as your AGI, your adjusted gross income, um, Tax Act is free to file. So we've always filed ours for free with Tax Act. And if you're 56 or younger. Yeah, 50, I mean, there's like, there's qualifications, uh, but most of it is, it just has to do with your, uh, your income. So if you go to IRS free file, um, you choose one of the tax softwares on there, you meet the qualifications for it being free for you. The states are free, the federal's free, everything's free. But in the exact same situation, if you go to the actual tax software website, like if you go to taxact.com, it'll charge you probably $200. Yeah, so, so just make sure to go through the you link. You have to go through that link every year too. It is on free file. Yeah. Um, even if, yeah, every year, because now TaxAct will send us a, an email like, oh, it's time to file your tax. You filed your taxes this last year. So don't click on the link in your email. Go yeah. to the free file website, click on that link, and it gives you like the special offer. Now, this person also said, um, is there one that's particularly user-friendly or are they all fine? We've only ever used 
uh, tax act and I think that was just because like that met the best qualifications for us so read the different qualifications and see which one works for you yeah and tax so tax always been fine for turbo us. tax this year I had someone else ask about this uh, they are no longer involved with this free file program so it kind of stinks for people that use TurboTax in the past because whatever tax software you used in the past it's always easier to go through that one again because they'll like basically pre-fill some of the information for you um, so if you use TurboTax in the past you basically have two options you can switch and go with one of these that that still is available in the program that's going to be free or you can just pay for TurboTax and depending on how much time it'll take you to fill out all the information it might still be worth it to go with TurboTax and just pay the money but uh yeah i think that tax act is it's always been really good for us no issues with it and uh, as long as you make less than sixty-five thousand a year which is pretty much every traveler then it's going to be free yeah we have two like over hour long really detailed videos just about taxes that i can also um, send to you guys and link in the comments it goes into much greater detail but it's really not that bad yeah okay so moving on we got a question about benefits and again this was more of like a general question um, that we do answer in the course but it was uh, the question is, how long does health insurance between contracts generally last so you can avoid lapses in coverage? And how does that work if you're using multiple companies? So first part of that question, how long does it generally last? If you're switching companies, it doesn't last at all. When the contract's end, it ends, it's over. If you're taking a contract, your next contract with the same company, it varies depending on the company. It can be anywhere from a week to 30 days, depending on how the company sets things up. Um, so some of them will give you a, a pretty long grace period. Some are, it's a pretty short grace period to start your next contract. Um, so, you know, I would if, say most of them are two, two to four weeks. So, yeah. two, and, and most travelers are not taking off that much time between most contracts. Now, obviously Jared and I take off six plus months, but I would say the majority of travelers are taking contracts either back to back or about a week or two weeks off, or you may take at most like a month off. So you would just ask your recruiter, but if you plan to get your next contract lined up with them, they'll extend your benefits between those two contracts for about two to four weeks, roughly. Yeah, so now if you're switching companies um, and your contract ends, your, your benefits end on the day the contract ends, um, you've pretty much got two options. If you're gonna take a long break, like say a month or something, you might consider either going through a third-party insurer or going through the uh, Affordable Care Act and signing up through the marketplace. If you're taking a short break, it's probably a good idea to just pay for um, COBRA and coverage, which basically is just, it's like a program that was created by the government that makes it so that your insurance benefits are extended longer. Uh, the downside is that you have to pay the full premiums while you're on COBRA. So while you're working through an agency or any employer, they're, they're subsidizing a portion of your health insurance cost. And that, that's why you have a lower cost compared to going through a marketplace or a third-party insurer while you're on contract. When you're not on contract, they no longer will subsidize that cost. So usually it's a little bit costly, but it will keep you from having gaps in your employment. So when you leave a company, you'll get a letter in the mail that says, you know, your employment has ended. Do you want to extend your health insurance? If you do, fill out this form. And that's what COBRA is. So um, short lapse, maybe two weeks, a week, something like that, switching companies. COBRA is a really good choice. If it's a longer period, just because it can be a little costly, it might make more sense to go through a third party or um, the marketplace. Now, in terms of um, how to handle insurance in general, if you're planning on switching between companies, for many years, we would take our next contract with whoever had the best option for us, and we occasionally did switch companies. And in our opinion, it really wasn't that big of a hassle 
to end one insurance when we ended one contract and started a new insurance on the next one. Yeah, you gotta wait like a week in the mail for your card to come and whatever. Um, and you might have to deal with like a small lapse between. We never thought it was a huge deal for us personally, but for those of you that may not want to deal with that hassle or you may have health concerns where you don't wanna ever risk having a lapse in coverage, uh, if you have a family and you can't have a lapse in coverage, et cetera, et cetera, there are certain therapists who choose to maintain private insurance throughout the year so they don't ever deal with the company benefits because of that. Now that Jared and I don't travel, um, take travel contracts as consistently and we don't have the option of the employer insurance as consistently, we do both maintain our own insurance plans. Um, but back when we were taking more consistent like back-to-back -back contracts, that's not how we did it. Again, we have some really in-depth videos and articles on this topic and if any of you guys are interested in considering private insurance instead of going through company insurance, we do have a private insurance agent that does free quotes. She'll go over like the different options with you. So just send us a message if you do want to um, get in contact with her, she'll do like a free quote with you. Yeah, the most recent video we did, I remember was summer of last year while we were in Hawaii, we did a insurance video talking about the pros and cons of each and also um, our insurance agent came on and answered some questions as well. So that would be a good one to go back and watch if you're, if you're confused about that yep. at all. Um, we also had another question about one of our um, travel friends who she's been traveling for maybe almost a year now. She's definitely done several different contracts and she has taken them all um, with one of the companies that we like a lot with AMN. Um, and she said that she's had a really great experience with them, had a great experience with her recruiter, really liked the pay packages. Everything has been great, except she's been having a lot of issues with her paychecks and the payroll department. And she was just kind of wanting to brainstorm with us a little bit about like what she could do about this. And if she, you know, it might just be to the point where she's so done with the paycheck issues that she may want to switch companies. Um, and basically I told her there's not a whole lot you can do other than obviously talking to your recruiter trying to talk to the payroll um, department to try to get these issues sorted out. Um, but basically what it boiled down to is we were discussing that every company is gonna kind of have its pros and cons. Like I wouldn't say that there's any perfect travel company out there. We've talked to dozens over the years and we have about 10 that we recommend to others. Um, and, and like Amen, we've taken a lot of jobs with them and we like a lot of things about them, but there's certain things that we don't like about them too. So. I think the answer to this one is just you're going to have to sometimes weigh the pros and cons, but we definitely like to reiterate that it's a good idea to talk to multiple companies and do consider other ones because you might you might be like, well, this one's been fine. I've been it's been okay, but then you if you never talk to another one, you never know what else is out there, and you yeah. might find something you like way better. One thing I would add, uh, a lot of times a recruiter has no control over this. So you can have the best recruiter in the world, the company can be great, the pay really high, and they just have issues with a certain department, either, you know, sometimes it's licensing, sometimes it's payroll, sometimes it's like credentialing. credentialing. Yeah, there can be all kinds of issues. Um, I will say that this company in particular, we took a lot of contracts with, we didn't have many issues at all with them prior. So pre-COVID. Yeah, pre-COVID, basically 2015 to 2019. Took a lot of contracts with them, didn't really have any issues. I think they lost a lot of people during COVID. Um, we've heard from several of their recruiters that the payroll department is struggling, they're short-staffed, they're always having issues with them as well. And uh, so hopefully- And the credentialing department. Yeah, credentialing as well. We've heard issues there. So hopefully it gets better. Um, I know they're trying to hire for those departments to try to replace what they lost, but um, I'm sure as a lot of you guys know as well, let's say you've had an employee there for 10 years and they leave and then you try to fill it in with someone brand new, 
things are not always going to be real smoothly with any any uh, job like that. So it's going to take a while for them to work out all the kinks, get people trained and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, in a situation like that, maybe go with another company for a while and then try, you know, if you don't like the other company or say AMN has a really good job that you want, try again in the future, something like that. But for sure. we've yeah. heard a lot about issues from them recently with, uh, with payroll, but we still think they're a great company. Um, yeah, but it's, I mean, just to reiterate, it's always a good idea for you guys to be talking to two to three recruiters. And I'm talking throughout your whole career. Like, it's not just like your first job search. You keep in touch with three and then you pick one and you're with them forever. We have been doing this for seven years and we are searching for jobs right now in Alaska. And I'm talking to multiple recruiters. I'm saying, like what do you, six or seven. I'm like, what do you have available? I need a specific thing, whatever. Um, it's always a good idea to keep your options open and consider other options. Yeah, sure. and uh, a good rule of thumb is the more picky you are, the more recruiters you probably want to talk to because the more company, and when we say recruiters, we don't mean different recruiters at the same company. We mean a recruiter from different companies because each company will have different job options and things like that. So in our situation, we want to go to Alaska. We have a specific area in Alaska we want to go to and we want them to be outpatient jobs. So we're extremely specific. So we're talking to a lot of companies to have the best options. I will say, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily, I think the, um, there's diminishing returns after you pass like three to four recruiters because yeah. for the most part, between four companies, you're going to see 95% of the job options available. So if you're trying to find a different job that those four companies don't have, probably talking to the fifth and sixth one isn't going to make a huge difference. And you should kind of already get like interview the recruiter and get an idea of the pay packages and the benefits that they offer. So the fifth and sixth one aren't going to help you find different benefits that you haven't found already. They might just be helping you find a job that you don't see. But for the most part, we think three to four is plenty. Okay. Uh, next section is about job searches. Okay, so another um, therapist had originally reached out and they asked about a job. Um, they were like, oh, I only want these jobs in Texas and we recommended some certain recruiters to them. Well, then she came back and said, you know what, my situation has changed. I think actually now I might be wanting to take some jobs in New York. Um, would you recommend that I talk to different recruiters than the ones you originally recommended? Um, for the most part, most travel recruiters and companies staff nationwide. So for the most part, it's just going to be a matter of you going back to those same recruiters that you've been talking to and explaining to them that now your preferences have changed and now we need to shift gears and maybe look at some jobs in this other area. But if you're not sure and you don't know if like a certain company has jobs in a certain area, ask the recruiter or ask us and we might know. There's only a very few companies that we know of that like tend to have more jobs like in one niche area most of them are going to have jobs in all 50 states yeah there um but yeah there are situations where there are some companies that let's say you ask specific specifically about one state or one area we might send certain companies that we know have jobs in that area that have exclusive jobs in that area um but and then if you want to go with a different uh different area it might be slightly different but for the most part they will have some jobs in the area it's just that some companies like um, we know about three in particular that sort of specialize in certain areas or certain settings. So um, there are situations where it would change, but for the most part, if it's not a very specific area, it's probably gonna be fine to just work with the same recruiters, just tell them you updated your preferences and uh, go from there. Yeah. Um, now the same conversation with the same therapist sparked another topic and she said, you know, my situation has changed. I now kind of only want to look for jobs in this one area. And it was pretty much just one state. And so then we had to discuss from there the process of what it would be like to find local travel jobs or um, basically can you find jobs if you're only looking at one city or one state? Yeah, we just put an article out about this, uh, but 
in general, it depends on the area. Um, there are some areas where you can, like say you want to travel only in around the Bakersfield, California area. I would bet you could do that for 20 years, find consistent jobs, not have issues. They always need travelers there. But say you want to travel specifically around Austin, Texas, you're going to have a lot of issues because there's limited jobs and a lot of therapists want to go there. So um, it really depends on the area. Local jobs can be extremely easy to find or extremely hard to find depending on the setting and the area you want to, you want to find. Um, so that's the big thing. What area are you in? How many travel jobs are usually in that area? That will give you a good idea of whether it's even feasible or not. Yeah, and so you can ask us if you have something specific in mind and we can tell you, um, or you can just talk to the recruiters and let them know kind of like what criteria, what radius you're looking in. And they're always gonna try. They'll look in their database, they'll call around, they'll see if they can find a job, but if there's not a job, there's just not a job. Yeah. Um, so it may not work out always if you only want to travel to a specific location. All right, um, we just have a couple more questions here. Um, if anybody is tuning in live and you have additional questions that you would like for us to answer, you can leave them in the comments. Um, also for our friends in the course group, if you are watching on the replay later on Facebook, you can feel free to add additional questions in the comments here or just send us a private message. Um, if you're listening later on the podcast, um, I don't know when the next time is we would be doing a public Q&A, but you can feel free to send us a private message and we'll help you with your question. All yeah. right. Also, we would like to do hopefully some more live videos soon. There's a um, few topics that we want to cover, but it all depends on like how good the Wi-Fi is. We don't want to like start a video and have a bunch of issues and things like that. So if we can find uh, some Airbnbs with good Wi-Fi, we'll try to do some more public videos in the next uh, next few weeks and cover some pretty good topics. Yeah, we've been a little bit inconsistent with our um, regular videos just with this trip. We've had a lot going on, so hopefully we'll get back to those soon. Yep. All right, so the next question was kind of about um, finance. Um, and this is from a newer graduate wanting to know, what should be my highest priority as far as building financial stability right after school? I know you guys have a lot of great options you've talked about, but I know I just feel kind of overwhelmed with all the different possibilities. So what should be my main focus right after graduation? Um, so I would say the main focus should be earning as much as you can and spending as little as you can while still living the type of lifestyle you want. Um, so creating the biggest gap between your income and expenses as possible. Once you have done that, so you know things like try to minimize expenses on little things, eating out, car expenses, uh, you know, go with housing that's not too unaffordable, reduce your tax home cost by um, maybe renting a room in a house or downgrading, downsizing, um, something like that. That'll save you a lot of money. Try to take contracts that are higher paying. Try to work overtime if the contract will allow it. Maybe look for PRN jobs in the area of your contract if you know you if there's options available and you want to make a little extra money that way. Mm -hmm. So once you create the biggest gap possible, really you only have two options. One, you can put the money towards your student loans. Well, I guess you have three options. Put all the money towards your student loans. Try to get rid of them as soon as possible. You could go on an income-based repayment plan, pay the minimum on your loans and invest as much as possible. Put all that extra money into investments. Um, I would say probably a great place to start is an S&P 500 index fund. Um, very simple investment. You can just automate it, put a certain amount each week or each month into a fund, um, say through Vanguard or Fidelity or something like that. Um, or you can do a mixed approach where you take say half, put it towards loans and half towards investments. So it's really not complicated. You don't, and basically, if you can just increase your income as much as possible, decrease your expenses, create that gap, and just put the money in savings for now, and just figure out what you want to do after that. It doesn't have to be a rush. 
There's no, uh, there's no major rush, like things are not gonna change drastically in three or four months while you figure things out. So don't feel pressure, don't feel like you need to make a, uh, a rash decision or something on where to put your money. Um, you've got plenty of time to figure that out, just the main thing is to create that big gap and then decide what to do with it later. Um, like we said in the course, and we've talked about a lot, we chose to just invest as much as possible, the majority of that being in an index fund like I talked about, and uh, that has done very well for us. And prior performance does not indicate future performance, but in general, over time, the stock market goes up. So if you're investing in one of those funds, you should do well there. So you just have, it's a kind of a personal decision whether you want to pay off your loans quickly with the extra money you make as a traveler, or you want to invest and, and try to drag those loans along as uh, long as possible to try to maximize your investments. Yeah, and I will say, in addition to all that, immediately after school when you start earning income and you're trying to work on your savings rate, um, build up an emergency fund. This yeah. is really important um, for new grads, this is really important for new travelers. Hopefully new travelers, if you've been working for a while, you already have been working on your savings and your financial stability, but we do know that some people you know, have had trouble with their finances beginning their career. Maybe they don't have a big savings. There is a lot of uncertainty, or there's some uncertainty as a travel therapist. Of course, by taking our course and um, you know hedging all your bets by learning as much as you can, working with the right recruiters, um, maximizing all the ways that you can be successful as a traveler, you cut down a lot of those risks. But there's always a small risk that you could have your contract canceled or something comes up. So it's really important as a traveler to build up a savings um, account, an emergency fund, within like that first six months of when you're getting that big travel therapy paycheck, right? So go ahead and build up like a few months worth of savings in case something happens where you go without work for a few weeks or a month. Um, yeah. So build that, that nest egg, that savings account first. And then once you have a little bit set aside there, now as you're earning the next six months of paychecks, we can start you know, deciding our, what are we gonna do with our student loans? What are we gonna do with our investments? You definitely, you get that deferment period right when you graduate so you don't have to start paying your loans back right away. I forget how long it is. Might be, long. Months, I think. <laughs> might be longer right now because everybody's loans have been deferred for a while. Yeah. So you might have plenty of time to figure out what to do with your student loans, but definitely build up that savings account um, to have an emergency fund right away. Yeah, and one other thing, um, you said you're overwhelmed. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. One important thing to remember here is that, I always say this, but finances can be as simple or as complex as you want to make them. So I got obsessed, very obsessed with finances right for graduation and was spending a ton of time trying to fine tune everything I was doing from investment options to saving as much money as possible to credit card rewards, all these things. I would say 95%, probably 90 to 95% of the results we got, you could do with just like 20 hours of research. So just you know, do a little bit of research on maximizing your income, a little bit of research on reducing your expenses, some various ways there, and a little bit of research on index fund investing, and that would have been 90% of all the benefit we ever got, and you could do that in 20 hours. You don't have to spend a thousand, thousands of hours like I did to get that extra 10%. So don't feel overwhelmed. The basics are pretty simple. Yeah. All right, so we have just a couple more questions here. Um, I know this has gone on a while, but hopefully you guys can scroll through and pick which parts are the most important to you to listen to. Um, on the replay. Okay, so this question was kind of a unique um, clinical question that this therapist is encountering at her new contract. Um, so she mentioned that she's having just kind of a weird uh, interaction with one of her colleagues and she just felt uncomfortable on how she should approach it because she basically felt like as a traveler, maybe she shouldn't speak up, maybe she should just, 
you know, she didn't know how to handle. So she basically said that there's also another traveler at the same facility, different discipline, and this person is just a negative Nancy. They're just always complaining about the caseload and the productivity and the patience, and she's just really sucking all the air out of the room and making it really hard for this therapist to get her work done. And she just didn't know if she just should suck it up and be quiet or if she should say something. She kind of wanted to know where is her place as a traveling therapist in this facility. Yeah, we've dealt with a lot of negative coworkers. Uh, I would say the first thing to do is just try to avoid them as much as possible. Um, we, I mean, there are people that are just unhappy people and it doesn't matter if it's a permanent job or a travel contract or whatever, you're gonna run into those people and if they are able to, they will drag everyone else down. There's those kind of people. If you can avoid those people and just try to stay positive, uh, that's ideal. If it's a small space though, and you're kind of stuck with that person and they're always complaining and distracting you, then yeah, say something. I mean, that's actually affecting your clinical work. Like if you're not getting things done, your employer will wanna know why you're not as productive as you could be. And you could say, hey, I just wanna let you know, um, I'm, I'm having issues focusing on getting my notes done or whatever because of this person, you know, it's not a big deal. You can choose what to do with that or choose how you want to handle the situation, but you know, just letting you know. And uh, that's probably a good way to approach it without being really direct and being like, you know, this person's really bothering me, but also letting the, the manager know that it's Im impacting your work. Yeah, and you can approach it with a slightly different attitude than you might approach it if you're a permanent employee, because if you're a permanent employee and they were a permanent employee, obviously there's no end in sight on how long you might have to work with this person. But yeah. you do know if it's a travel contract, there is an end in sight. And so, Honestly, like a lot of travelers kind of have this attitude anyway, and you could use it as an excuse of like, hey, you know what, I'm just here and I'm just trying to get my work done, get in, get out. And so you might approach it like that with this other person. You might say like, hey, I understand, you know, you're not really pleased with this and that, but I'm just trying to do the best job I can here. Um, I just work here. I'm just trying to get my work done and, and go home for the day. And so I really need to get my notes done or I don't really have time to discuss this or or whatever it might be, so you can just kind of like try to cut it off that way. But um, I, I don't think that you have to be afraid to speak up about something in a professional manner just yeah. because you're a traveler. Yeah, not at all. I mean, the employer has you there for a reason and they're paying a lot of money for you to be there, so they wanna know if there's any issues and, and don't feel bad about saying something. Absolutely. All right, so these last few questions um, are from one of our therapists that is thinking about RVing. Um, so this might not apply to some of you guys. If it doesn't, no worries. Um, you can skip this part. Again, for those of you who this may not apply to, thank you for watching this. Let us know if you have any follow-up questions. Um, but for those of you who might want to learn a little bit more about RVing, we did travel together in a fifth wheel camper for three years out of our travel therapy career. Uh, we lived in it three years full time. It has its pros and cons. Like we'll just say that straight up. Like it's not perfect, but also finding short-term housing isn't perfect either. Yeah. Um, so this person, she had some specific questions. She was wondering about um, the cost of like uh, the RV site. And she specifically mentioned like the water and electric hookup and that sort of thing. So typically what you're gonna look for um, if you're RVing is you want to call RV parks. If you just Google campgrounds, sometimes you're only gonna get day use campgrounds. So you can Google campgrounds, but you also wanna Google the words RV parks. And you wanna look for one that's called a full hookup RV park. That means that at each RV site, they offer water, electric, and sewer. Because there are some sites that is just like for dry camping or boondocking. And those are just people who are like camping for the weekend with their family and they don't need to connect 
to all the bells and whistles, right? So you want to first make sure you pick an RV site that's full hookup. Yeah. In now, terms of how much it costs, this varies drastically depending on the campground. So I would say the majority of the ones we went to, the water and electric was just included in the cost of the site. So it might be $800 a month or $600 a month, and that includes however much, however much electricity you use, however much water you use, sometimes Wi-Fi is included. You know, you usually have access to like a bathhouse. Sometimes there's like basketball courts or a pool, all that stuff's included. There are some though that will charge separately, and it can be a flat rate. Sometimes it might be like $30 a month for electricity on top of your campground rent, um, or it could be based on how much you actually use. I would say that's pretty rare though, because that, puts more work on the campground themselves to like actually read the meters and mm -hmm. everything. So we rarely had one that actually charged by how much you use. It was usually either a flat rate based on probably what the average is or just included in the cost of the site itself. So it's gonna vary a lot, but you know, water and electric, electric for our camper, if we were paying by usage would probably be less than 50 or $60 a month, like not very much because the camper's not very big. You don't use a ton of water. You're not there during the day on assignment. And uh, same with electricity. There's not that much to use. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the price range, it just varies so much on the part of the country. We paid as little as 300 a month. We paid um, 200 a month. In North Carolina, occasionally, a few different yeah. times in rural North Carolina, we paid as much as 900 a month in Massachusetts. We have heard of travelers in California paying as much as like 2000 a month. Um, which is a lot, but considering that you have to already pay to buy the RV or um, or lease the RV or whatever you're doing. Um, however, there are some places in California that the rent at a rent is even more than that, more than that like three thousand or four thousand. So it's going to vary, but we would say that a typical range would be somewhere between like five hundred to a thousand a month. Yeah, on the um, East Coast, most of ours were the average is probably about five hundred a month, and that included water, electric, and then all the other amenities. Usually the Wi-Fi is not great, which goes into the next question. Uh, what's the best way to get reliable internet everywhere without having to cancel and reinstate in each location? Um, I would say it depends on how reliable you need it, like, or how good you need it. The best way is probably a hotspot. So something like a Verizon hotspot is really good. We use that for a long time. If the campground doesn't have Wi-Fi, that's decent. Um, the problem is there's data limits on that. So if you're watching Netflix or something like that, it's probably not a good option. Um, some of the campgrounds, their Wi-Fi actually will be good. I would say probably about 20 to 25% of the ones we stayed at actually had Wi-Fi that was fine and it worked well. Um, the other ones didn't. So hotspot is one thing. We also met a couple recently. Um, I was gonna mention Kayla. Kayla's in the group. Yeah. Um, and Kayla's husband is, I think, an engineer. Um, He's I think smart. something with cybersecurity. He knows things about technology yeah. and he had this whole setup. So I can tag Kayla in the video and maybe you guys could chat a little bit more. He had this whole crazy setup. I can't say that I understood. It had a satellite dish on the top and um, he had, yeah. Uh, he was some... te he's tech savvy, let's put it that way. So he had a pretty fancy setup and he needed that because he is going to work remotely while Kayla is the physical therapist and she works um, clinically. And I think this actually, for the couple that was asking these questions, might be the same situation where um, one is a therapist and one is going to work remotely. So if that's the case, you might want to chat with our friends, Kayla and Ryan, about their setup yeah. to have more consistent uh, remote work interaction. It's probably going to be a little more complicated because you might actually have to install something on the camper. Mm -hmm. um, the other option could be just a hotspot that has like unlimited data that's going to cost a little bit more, but it will be obviously way easier than installing something on the camper itself. Right. 
Um, what were your main challenges when you travel with an RV? So I think we didn't necessarily expect there were going to be so much like maintenance and repairs. It's like having a house on wheels and you know if you've ever been a homeowner before, it's not like being a renter. You don't just call the landlord if somebody if something breaks. If you own a home, you're responsible for all the upkeep and the maintenance and things like that. And I just don't know that we were really prepared for that because on our weekends we wanted to do things fun. We wanted to explore the area. We didn't want to spend all the time with home maintenance and so that was kind of a drag for us. But there are certain people who that doesn't bother them at all. We talked to some other RVers that are like, no, it's not really been a problem for us. We don't mind. We like tinkering with things. We yeah. like fixing things. We don't mind. We chill on the weekends. So what does it matter if we have to spend two hours on a project? Um, so that, it, it just depends on what type of person you are. You have to know that if you're signing up for the RV life, it's a, it's a lifestyle choice. You're choosing to deal with those hassles over choosing to deal with the hassles of finding short-term housing. And for some yeah. people, those pros significantly outweigh those cons. I will say one of the other things they asked about was transport, and that was um, something I wish we had been a, a little bit more diligent on planning when we're, when we're moving from place to place. We were always doing things last minute. We're usually very rushed. We were only taking a weekend, so you know we'd get home from work on Friday, start packing up, finish on Saturday, leave on Saturday, and a lot of times we would not have things planned out very well. And one thing, if I could go back and do it again, I would plan every gas station stop along the way, which if it's only a eight or nine hour drive, that might only be two stops. But just finding a place that's like a truck stop where you know you'll be able to get in and out easily uh, would have taken a lot of uh, worry away from me because pulling the camper, trying to think about uh, if I'm able to pull into a gas station and then get out was um, stressful. And, and some people choose to bring extra gas cans with them too, because there's nothing worse than like, feeling like you're gonna run out of gas on the highway and not knowing if like there's any exits coming up where there's an accessible gas station. Yeah, um, and we had a situation where we were almost out of gas. We had been looking for a place for a while, couldn't find any good exit. Um, and then we pulled off one that said that it had uh, Diesel. Yeah, it had diesel, so we knew it would be a bigger gas station. We but thought then, it would be. Yeah, then one was closed, the other one had a very steep grade getting in, and when we went in, the back of the camper scraped and it actually ruined one of our stabilizer jacks. So situations like that are just extremely stressful and could be avoided with just proper planning. Mm -hmm. um, but I, at least me personally, I always was a little stressed out pulling the camper, even when things were going really well, just because it's, uh, you know, you can't go as fast. You feel like you're in people's way all the time. People are flying past you. And, but um, I will say p different people have different stressors. Yeah. We have talked to RV people that we describe some of these headaches that we encountered and to them, it was not a headache. There are yeah. just some people that just that stuff rolls right off their back. They don't care about it. They're not stressed about it. So it depends on you. Um, and if that's a lifestyle that you want to choose and those are the it's it's fun it's like a skill a new skill that you're going to learn you're going to learn yeah. about being an rv person and fixing this and doing that and planning the logistics and maybe you're really going to love that but if you if everything that we're talking about right now scares the crap out of you maybe you're not going to love that yeah. you just have to kind of know what kind of person you are there are some people that just really love it and they want to have their own space they want to have all the benefits of bringing their little house on wheels with them that was the part we really loved. Yeah. Um, we never had to pack it up our stuff and like move it in and out of a place. We never had to find short-term housing, but it does come with its own struggles. So one other challenge is that you're going to be a little more limited on um, where you can go at certain times of the year because 
you really don't want to be in somewhere like Arizona or southern Texas in the summer, and you really don't want to be somewhere like Alaska or Montana, Wyoming, something like that in the winter. So you're going to be a little bit more limited um, when you're traveling in a camper, but a lot of people want to avoid those places at the extremes anyway, so it might not be a big issue for you. It really just depends. Yeah, they had asked, how do we keep warm during the winter? I would say that most travelers who travel in an RV just choose to go with the weather, so you go to the more mild places. There are people that get all-weather packages because we certainly know people that have taken RVs to Alaska and to these cold places. It is possible, but you would have to get an all-weather package for your RV, which could be more expensive. Yeah, and then in terms of keeping warm in the winter, what's cost-effective, uh, what we did is we used a mix of propane and space heaters. So propane tanks, we had two, two tanks, but they would run out pretty quickly if we only used that. So we tried to not use that very much and then use space heaters. And then that also depended on whether the electricity was included at the campground or not, because if the electricity was included and we didn't have to pay for that, then space heaters cost us nothing to use. So we would use two space heaters, heat the whole camper and not even use propane. If it was a situation where um, we did have to pay for electricity uh, or you know something where it's metered, then we might use more propane and less uh, space heater. So we found that probably it was more cost effective to use a space heater just in the area that, you know, if it's really cold in the area that we are at night, keep it like a, uh, like 60 degrees in the whole thing and then have a space heater that warms it up in the area where we are at that time, either in the living room or the bedroom or whatever. And uh, that works pretty well instead of just trying to keep the whole place heated to 70 degrees all the time. Yeah. There's so much more we could go into about RVing, and I know that some of you guys might be um, just deciding right now if RVing is going to be the best choice for you. We actually have several travelers in the course group who travel by RV. Um, I know Michelle is in there, Kayla, um, I know Michael and his family just started, um, Andrew and his family just started. So we could start a thread maybe on the course group uh, for those of you guys that are RVing and you guys could exchange stories. Obviously, I know Jared and I are a little bit more removed from it because it's been a couple of years now since we sold our RV. So you might want to, maybe you guys could start like a group chat talking about some of the current issues um, and your experiences because your experience might be different. Yeah, than and, and to be honest, probably costs, like we were talking about in the beginning for campgrounds and stuff, that's probably changed quite a bit since COVID because- And I know availability has changed yeah, too. Availability and costs are probably up. So, and we, we haven't traveled since COVID in a camper, so it's, yeah. it's different now. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll do that after the video. I'll start a, a little thread on the course group for those of you guys that are RVing and um, maybe you guys can connect a little bit further on that. Yep. All right, guys, well, that is all the questions that we have for um, the Q&A this month. We do plan to do more um, private Q&As for our course group members so we can go more in depth on some of these topics. Um, and again, we'll probably do some more videos for our public group um, in the coming weeks, just depending on our travels. Yep. So. Hopefully the rest of this trip goes well. We got about a month left. We're going from we're going to one other city in Colombia after this, and then we're going to Peru for uh, like a week and a half, and then Costa Rica, mm -hmm. and then back home. So um, we're already halfway through the trip, which is hard to believe because this was two and a half months, and uh, yeah, we're like six weeks in. Time flies, but we're definitely looking forward to these next couple stops. We're going to be going to Machu Picchu, which we're really excited about. Um, so stay tuned, make sure you're following us on Instagram if you want to see some of our travel pictures. And as always, if you guys have questions, whether you're just getting started with travel, haven't started yet, or you're already on contract, just shoot us a message and we're happy to help. Yep. All right. Take care, guys. Bye, guys.